how do you know if something you're doing or wearing is cultural appropriation? What is cultural appropriation? And is it bad? These seem like questions that would have straightforward answers, but they don't. And that's because cultural appropriation is full of nuance. Cultural appropriation is a product of history, colonization, oppression, marginalization, and more. And it's this nuance that we're going to unpack today. Alpaca Pals, today we are having a crash course in cultural appropriation, and it's going to teach us how we can be respectful of other cultures, not just when we travel, but at home as well. And to help us learn, we're chatting today with Melissa Chan. My name is Melissa Chan. I'm currently a project manager over at ECA, which is an executive search firm. I did my PhD in East Asian languages and cultures with a focus in cinema and media studies and the digital humanities. And I graduated from the University of Southern California with my doctorate degree. And in terms of uh, you know my expertise on cultural appropriation, um, I will not say I'm a 1000% expert, but I have done a little bit of research on the topic and have spoken about it a couple times in the media. Yes, Alpaca Pals, today's convo is going to be a little bit on the academic side, but that's because we need to treat this subject with care. Before we dive into the convo with Melissa, I wanted to just ask you, Katie, do you know what cultural appropriation is? Like, do you know a formal definition of it? Yeah, I mean, the way that I always thought of it was just taking something with history or meaning from a culture and then claiming it as your own or profiting off of it. But there's obviously still a whole bunch of things that I worry about, like braiding my hair. And I know like a lot of my family members have a lot of questions about it too. So there's little things and things that I worry about a lot when it comes to cultural appropriation. So yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way. And like I was when I was writing these show notes, I was like, I'm not even sure I could like properly explain what cultural appropriation is because it is such a nuanced and complicated subject. So I did some Googling, and here's a very short definition. Cultural appropriation is when somebody adopts aspects of a culture that's not their own. I think that this definition is a bit simple. It it just leaves out a very important element of cultural appropriation, It's the element that makes this topic so difficult to navigate, and that's that cultural appropriation is about more than adopting aspects of someone else's culture. It refers to a power dynamic in which members of a dominant culture take elements from a culture of people that have been systematically oppressed by that or another dominant group. So there's a couple terms that are going to come up in our conversation with Melissa, and I thought it would be good to explain what they mean right off the top so that the conversation is accessible to everyone who's listening. All right, so the first term is colonialism. So colonialism is the practice of taking full or partial political control over another country, occupying it with settlers, and exploiting it economically. A classic example of colonialism is when European settlers arrived in Canada. Europeans arrived here in Canada in the late 15th century, and they created settlements on this land, which we now call Canada. And in that process of settling, 
Indigenous people were murdered, they were enslaved, their knowledge of the land was stolen, and they were used for economic gain. Today, Indigenous people in Canada experience systemic racism that is a legacy of this colonization that happened hundreds of years ago. Other examples of colonialism are the British Empire's colonization of India, or the Dutch colonization of Indonesia. While technically colonization in much of the world has ended, the legacy and impact of it has carried on, and it continues to be traumatic. Cultural appropriation is in part a legacy of colonization, and we're going to dive into this more with Melissa. Another term we're going to bring up in discussing cultural appropriation is marginalization. This term refers to groups of people who've been systemically disadvantaged. For example, in Canada and also the USA, Indigenous people are marginalized, as are people of color. On the flip side, in both these countries, white people are not marginalized. Instead, they are what's called the dominant culture, which allows them to benefit off of advantages that are built into society. These are advantages that favor white people. And that's where the term privilege comes in. As a white person, acknowledging my privilege means acknowledging that I have had advantages throughout my life that marginalized people have not. So the phrase checking your privilege, as people like to call it, means actively acknowledging that our social systems are unfair and acknowledging that we need to do the work to continuously change that. Addressing cultural appropriation is one way that we can do this work. Okay, that was a lot, and I think it's important to note here also that while history is important to talk about in the context of this episode, I am not a historian. (laughs) This is a travel podcast, but here we are. (laughs) Um, None of our episodes are exhaustive explanations of anything, so I just want to say that as well because... I think we covered a lot in this episode, but there's definitely more to read and learn about cultural appropriation. So I think maybe this is a good segue, but following this episode, it's definitely worth diving into some resources, and we are going to add this to the show notes. So the first thing I asked Melissa was how she became interested in cultural appropriation, especially as a concept to study. For me, the big segue was when I um, was asked to be on a panel about cultural appropriation and appreciation uh, with Viet Nguyen and a couple of other folks where, um, you know, I basically just was asked to speak about the the context, especially in the non-Western context. Could cultural appropriation happen in contexts, for example, in uh, mainland China, where, you know, the, the dominant culture is not necessarily a Western one, but one that is seen as a not a dominant culture, but within their own context, um, especially the mainland Chinese context, when the Han Chinese kind of ethnic group are seen as the dominant, what happens between, you know, the dominant culture versus the non-dominant culture or potentially marginalized culture? I focused on uh, particularly Sinophone communities, places where a uh, form of Chinese or Mandarin was spoken outside of mainland China. So these are already marginalized communities, but they have that of authentic Chineseness that may or may not uh, objectively exist. Um, and so I've kind of entered the realm of cultural appropriation and appreciation through that lens. What is the history of cultural appropriation? Um, 
And I guess what I'm wondering really is like, when did people start talking about it and actively noting it as a phenomenon? I think of that kind of in two ways. So, you know, the history of cultural appropriation as a, as a practice and then cultural appropriation as a term. So I think in terms of the, the history of cultural appropriation as a practice, it definitely has its roots in colonialism, probably was practiced even before that, but its connection to colonialism, I think, is definitely there. Um, kind of when we're thinking about the history of uh, cultural appropriation as a term, then it re- really wasn't a term until about the 1970s, 1980s, when that critique of colonialism and Western expansionism in particular really emerged as a form of academic study. And then it kind of trickled down into um, kind of more general usage as an idea uh, post its discussion in the academic realm. So from the 1990s into today, it's still very much a contested term, I think. And I think one of the reasons why we're talking about it today is that it's still kind of up in the air. We're all still kind of confused about exactly what it is, what constitutes cultural appropriation, or what constitutes kind of cultural appreciation, if that can be the kind of alternative term to that. Kind of overall, I think, practice-wise, it has been around much longer, but as a term and as our kind of social awareness of it has more likely been since the 1970s and 80s. And what are some of those points of tension? Because you mentioned that it has been contested a lot, and I have noticed this as well. That's why, honestly, we were very nervous to tackle this subject, because it seems like there are so many different angles and opinions and obviously nuance. So it just makes it so complex to talk about. But I do notice that it is contested, especially when it's talked about in popular culture. What would you say are some of these main tensions that you see? A lot of the times, I think the discourse that surrounds cultural appropriation really kind of maybe gets more heated or the kind of flare up points occur when we see it a lot of times in pop culture, like you mentioned, especially if we're thinking about it when it's connected to a lot of times capitalism and a lot of the things that we associate with capitalist kind of uh, popular culture here. So, you know, when Miley Cyrus started twerking or, you know, when um, folks of uh, who are not of color started, you know, wearing uh, cornrows or braids, maybe things, aesthetic practices that are taken out of their context and then used in a way where it's used a lot of times to market somebody or basically increase their cultural capital in the capitalist uh, sense where they're, you know, using a lot of times the markers of another culture to then increase their own kind of capitalist gains there. And so whether that's to sell more records or to increase their visibility, I think a lot of times those are the really strong tension points because it's through that process when they're taking these aesthetic practices, essentially stripping them of almost all of their meaning and then using them to have some sort of financial or capital gain, then that's really the the really, I think, problematic portion. And I think that's where the flare-up points begin. Really, the tension kind of rubs against people in that way because some folks, on the other hand, when they're practicing cultural appreciations, they take a, a cultural object or aesthetic practice, really truly kind of appreciate it, study it, you know, um, talk to people about it especially people of that originating culture, and then put that into practice. And sometimes that's seen as appropriation by others who are who have not maybe interacted with that individual um, particularly. So I think, you know, the, there's a really fine line there of, you know, what constitutes these cultural appropriation practices versus appreciation practices. But I think the largest kind of flare-up point, um, at least from my perspective here, is that you know, when we use those aesthetic practices, completely devoid them of all their meaning and use them for financial gain and erase the cultures or erase the peoples of that culture where that thing originated from becomes then, I think, the really hard sticking point. And that's where we get to you know, the political meaning of cultural appropriation as well. Right. And I can draw some parallels to some things that I've I've read personally about cultural appropriation that 
are super problematic, which is that a person who is not of color, and I'm talking like just a regular person, not a celebrity who's using this for capital gain, but a regular person, say they wear cornrows and they are not of color, they'll often be they'll be looked at like oh that's beautiful like it looks so good on you whereas if a person of color is to wear cornrows they'll often be criticized for it or it'll be stereotyped in some way and so it's sort of like there's this double standard there that is deeply unfair to the origins of that practice. Precisely. I think what you're pointing to as well, Erin, is that, you know, if somebody who is not of color wears those cornrows and somebody of color who wears the cornrows, the reception is is starkly different. And, you know, part of that reception is the erasure of the people who the particular practice stemmed from. So I think that, you know, when you highlight that, it's like you're completely 100% correct in pointing that it's not only about these large celebrities or very highly visible figures who are in this kind of discourse, but in terms of our everyday practices, I think a lot of times there might be some of these minor uh, microaggressions, or maybe a better way to say it would be, you know, minor abrasions, uh, contentions within our everyday practices that can be seen as this appropriative practice, even when the person who might, might be doing it doesn't necessarily know that it's appropriation. And I think that's something that we run into a lot in looking at like travel blogs and forums that I follow. I see often white people will post and they'll ask is this cultural appropriation looking for feedback? Because I think it's such a gray area that a lot of people feel anxiety about accidentally getting involved with cultural appropriation because it's so hard to tell like whether it's appreciation or appropriation. But to go back to colonialism, I'm curious if you can share examples of sort of like earlier signals that cultural appropriation was becoming a practice. What were sort of the early signs of it or early examples? You know, from just my brief memory here in terms of recollection, um, I think a lot of times when we think about colonialism, it's in the British context because the British Empire was so large. And so, you know, one of the first things I think about is um, a lot of colonialists had these chest of drawers or these objects that they would take from the colonies and put them back in their house and then, you know, kind of display them as objects of wonder. From that piece, I think it started almost as early as the 15th century or even before, um, you know, and from those types of things, they're essentially creating a, a space sometimes within their home where they're placing objects that are completely devoid of their original context and, you know, treating them as objects of, of fascination. You know, when we're thinking about even just a little bit closer to our own modern era, you know, the practice of, for example, um, a yoga or anything of that sort, when they're originally in their kind of British context, you know, sometimes it was seen as banned or during the kind of British colonial era, there was a lot of restrictions in India of how, you know, yoga could have been practiced or how people could have worn their um, hair or their stylings and all the kind of cultural practice that existed there. And so when with these bands, I think it becomes a very interesting dynamic when we see after these bands with the complete embrace of different cultural practices. So in terms of the earlier practices of cultural appropriation, we can think of as far as far back as you know, potentially Marco Polo. I'm curious to talk a bit more about yoga. We actually asked our listeners what questions they had, and a couple people brought up yoga because I think it's just such a widely accepted practice now especially in North America, that people don't see it as cultural appropriation anymore. I'm curious if you can explain sort of like the evolution of yoga in North America, assuming you know, and how that relates to the concept of cultural appropriation. 
So I, I just want to maybe first off preface that by saying that I'm not a you know complete expert in particularly of you know yoga and all that kind of stuff. The magazine um, Everyday Feminism has a great article about it. But from my understanding um, about yoga in particular and its evolution here in the West is that, you know, a lot of times the practice has been seen as a way of self-discovery, of one way to kind of pursue one's health in a very healthy way, right, where you're just stretching and, you know, breathing. I think the overall issue then becomes, you know, who owns yoga as such? There's a lot of times when some yoga schools or some yoga practitioners might see themselves as completely authentic and, you know, therefore they have that power. And a lot of times appropriation is about these power hierarchies that exist to um, assert what is the right way to do things. And so I think that's where the tension comes up, particularly with yoga, because it is a bodily practice as well, where if you're going to become a yoga practitioner, it should be a journey about learning rather than, you know, asserting oneself as the uh, sole authority, uh, regardless of, you know, how many years of experience they've had or, you know, exactly where they learned this particular practice and making space for folks who have origins in that culture or who have practiced it in a different way. So I think the main thing with yoga then is really about the ownership of the practice, especially I think in discourses in the United States, when yoga a lot of times is flattened with this very kind of highly spiritualized practice. And on the one hand, it is very much a spiritual practice that has or has origins in India. Um, and, you know, we should respect that. At the same time, when it's transferred then into the context of the United States, where these different types of power hierarchies exist, particularly racial power, hierarchy, power hierarchies, folks who are generally of color are not seen as those authorities on the kind of yoga practice, especially in terms of the spiritual practice. Or if they are, they are seen as essentialized versions of those uh, yogis or yoga practitioners. On the other hand, a lot of times when folks um, who are not of color, or uh, you know, some white folks might be practicing yoga, I think the big issue then becomes, you know, do they own that yoga practice as such? Do they have the authority to tell others how to practice their own form of yoga? I think that is where the, the sense of appropriation begins to kind of take shape, is that when somebody says, hey, I've practiced this for a, a ton of time, and therefore I am the authority on it, and um, you know, other folks can't uh, have their input, I think that is, becomes the kind of most dangerous form of appropriation in that sense. Additionally, I think one of the really big things in this case as well is that yoga spaces are not always open to folks of color. And I think that's where a lot of times the tensions exist as well. So when there's a studio that opens, you know, a lot of times the yoga practice is not, not always they try to be inclusive. I know, I personally know of a lot of yoga studios who are owned by non-Indian folks who have that feeling of, we want to be an inclusive space, which I think is a wonderful thing. But there are yoga studios as well that don't necessarily practice that in, in actual practice. And so when they begin you know, making the space uncomfortable for folks of color or um, you know, Indian folks who have practiced yoga or even Indian folks who haven't practiced yoga and take, you know, certain aspects of it, of yoga, the yoga practice, for example, the chanting of, of specific things or, you know, the namaste kind of thing. Um, and they take it out of the context and they turn it into a very different type of practice. Then I think that becomes, uh, you know, a place where the space would become very tense because then it's not necessarily welcoming to folks um, who would be who would be, have different experiences of the yoga practice? The the kind of main crux of the issue with yoga is number one about authenticity, and number two about making space, and then number three about really trying to keep the context in which it originally emerged or has emerged from its original context. 
And to speak to that third point, maybe this practice that I've noticed of people from the West traveling to India to actually study under a yogi is a good one then because they are acknowledging them as the authority behind the practice and going to them to learn. And would you say then that that is a great way to approach learning yoga? Absolutely, especially if you have the economic and financial means to do so. Any form of education about any sort of practice that anyone takes up is, is a great thing. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I would maybe potentially caution about that is, you know, once you learn from that yogi and you go back to, um, you know, whether it's a Canada or the United States, it becomes one where you also have to, it was a very popular term a couple of years ago, but, you know, check your own privilege about your own practice. When you come back to the United States or go back to your place of origin, um, there are also different types of power dynamics that exist within that space. And I think being respectful of the practice itself, understanding that you're constantly learning and then being open to the input that you get from uh, other communities that might be involved in that practice is really important as well. So I, I think essentially it's really about taking that time to do, to do the learning, to educate yourself. So far in my convo with Melissa, we've covered the history of cultural appropriation and some of its context and points of contention in pop culture. And next, we're going to talk specifically about how cultural appropriation comes up during travel and what we as travelers should keep in mind to avoid participating in cultural appropriation. But before we talk travel, I wanted to ask two of our previous alpaca guests how they personally feel about cultural appropriation. I wanted to do this because in this conversation, I think it's important to listen to a variety of voices. This gives us more perspective on how nuanced cultural appropriation is. So first, we asked Lily. We chatted with Lily a few weeks ago about her American-born Chinese identity. We'll link her episode in the show notes. Here's what she had to say. This is a topic that I think has really changed over time in, in terms of my opinion on it. A few weeks ago, a question like this came up on this travel Facebook group that I was a part of. And I wrote this like really lengthy response, but I feel like I'm never going to be that brilliant again. So I'm just going to I'm just going to um, sort of rehash that a little bit here. But basically, I think that everyone's going to have completely different opinions about this. So as someone who thinks a lot about uh, the, where we are in the world and the spaces we occupy and our identities and what we look like, for example, when I went to Japan, I really wanted to wear a kimono. And I, when I went to Korea, I really wanted to wear a hanbok. I'm not Japanese and I'm not Korean. I'm still East Asian. So if, you know, if I wore one, people might still be able to think that I, I belong in one. But I also thought a little bit about the infighting that um, these three countries have. And I decided to still wear them because ultimately I felt that I was coming from a place of respect. I wasn't there to make fun of their culture or be derogatory in any way. However, I, I'm still cognizant that power dynamics between races are different everywhere. And doing an action in the country of its origin is different than, let's say, like dressing up for it during Halloween. So I think that whenever people are, uh, you know, worried or they're being thoughtful about whether something can be construed as cultural appropriation, they can think about 
am I profiting off of this at the expense of the culture in question? Am I doing this for laughs or for another disrespectful reason? Is the culture in question still punished in the present day for wearing it? And whereas I would not be. And if all three are no, then like maybe you're probably being respectful towards the culture. So if I were invited to an Indian wedding and everyone was wearing a sari and I was invited to wear a sari, that's absolutely appropriate given the circumstances. But like wearing a Native American headdress to Coachella, I would never do that. And I think that's really gross. And I think especially given the genocidal and oppressive history of Native Americans in America. Ultimately, it's like up to everyone individually to make their decisions. You just have to be as respectful and as responsible as possible. We also checked in with Marty. She's a travel and diversity consultant who we had on Alpaca My Bags recently to talk about the Black travel movement. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, you need to. So we've linked her episode in the show notes as well. So here's her thoughts on cultural appropriation. So it goes back to authenticity. So like the Kardashians, I just, I hate, I hate anything that they do. You're doing this for clout, right? But there might be somebody who genuinely is like, I want cornrows because I just think it looks so good on you. But you also have to think about, you also can't be tone deaf to how people feel, right? So this is an example. One of my friends, um, one of my friends, one of her bosses is blind. And the way that she feels hairstyle or the way that she sees your hairstyle is by, by feeling it, right? So one day, another coworker came into the office with braids, like cornrows. And she was like, oh, Gina, like, feel my hair. And Gina's like, oh, my gosh, can you do this to my hair? Now, Gina's Caucasian, and the girl was African-American. So the girl got fake hair and put it in Gina's hair. So for one, Gina's blind. And for two, Gina was just feeling her hair and thought it felt cool. So the next day, she walks in, and she has cornrows. And she's in front of a bunch of Black people. And the Black people are like, what the hell is going on here, right? And it's not that Gina did it to be to be funny or spiteful or any of that, right? So it's a very gray area. The knowledge and the thought you put out about it, just like when people say, think before you speak. Is this nice? Is this kind? Will it offend anybody? Because cultural appropriation, especially in today's ugh, like celebrity world, is so much clout around it. I just think sometimes... People don't mean any harm about it, but we do live in a very sensitive community, a very sensitive times where if you have to double guess it, you probably just shouldn't do it. I don't necessarily get offended um, unless it's certain people, but I'm just like, you should ask somebody. I don't think we're ever going to stop seeing it. I think what you guys do in terms of creating spaces where we can talk about it for other people to listen and be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Or I didn't realize this is a problem, but now I know that's really important. I, like I said, I think people will always do it, but once they do it, the, them understanding why it's not okay, why the certain things they did were not okay. Because a lot of people honestly are, are just don't know. Like they don't mean any harm, but it's like, but did you ask? And 
I think like especially while traveling it is really difficult to understand where the line is because even in my own experiences I've I've noticed that oftentimes and I can use India as an example the last time that I traveled there I stayed in a homestay and after a couple days the woman running the homestay asked if she could do henna for me and I initially felt very uncomfortable with it because like my gut reaction was no that's cultural appropriation I'm white I should not be walking around with henna on me but she had invited me and I felt that it would almost offend her if I said no because she was so excited about it and that was one of those moments where I felt like very conflicted because on the one part like I doubt I would have said yes at home here in Canada but in that context it felt like it was okay and I think this is a struggle that a lot of travelers face because while you are in another country, oftentimes you will be invited to try a food or or attend a ceremony or even wear a cultural outfit. And so how do you how do you grapple with that as a traveler, do you think? Especially with travel, it changes the boundaries or the cultural boundaries or kind of social experience boundaries that we are kind of steeped in. Just kind of general advice is that when you're going to a different place with the different types of people and different culture and different society, it's always good to be respectful, number one, of that place. And if they're inviting you to participate, I think participating is not a bad thing. And, you know, I think what happens after that is is really important because taking the time to learn about the culture while you're there or, you know, after you've experienced something is really important. You know, if somebody is inviting you to participate in their cultural practices, that is, I don't think is a form of appropriation at all, because you have somebody from that culture who's inviting you to really enjoy something that they enjoy as well. And really, is it just about the experience of that? It can become an issue if you're then commodifying that person, either using them as a way to validate your own um, uh, experiences or using them in ways that they would not be open to. And I think that just comes out of a conversation with that person. You know, if they're helping you to do this henna um, uh, practice, then, you know, you can ask them as many questions. And I think they would be open to that, just thinking about the open forms of communication that we have. A lot of times if we're in a space um, and we're traveling, keeping an open mind to having different types of experiences is extremely important because then those continue to expand our horizons. And those become the trigger points in which we become much more curious about our culture. And so I think a lot of times those are entryways into ways in which we can really respect a culture. But in fact, once we're kind of invited to participate, or even if we're not invited to participate, if we're doing the research on it, and we're doing the learning portion that takes place, and that's the most important part. It's really the intent that makes it, you know, the appropriation or appreciation form. And I think for me, it's, you know, a little bit less about intent and more about the process. And I think, in fact, you know, the hesitation that you had really signals towards, you know, the awareness of this practice and or the awareness of cultural appropriation versus appreciation. And so this is great because you've outlined sort of one strategy that people can really use while they travel to to think about cultural appropriation, and that's just to begin with awareness. But do you have other advice for how people from dominant cultures can be conscious of cultural appropriation and how they can do better and specific strategies for figuring out whether something is going into cultural appropriation territory or whether this is an, an opportunity to learn and, and better yourself? I think one of the, the biggest kind of strategies that I even personally use is have 
try to have open lines of communication with folks or a really diverse set of folks. Um, you know, if it, I find something within Black culture or Indian culture or Chinese culture that I think is particularly interesting, my first reaction shouldn't be, oh, I should just take that object and use it for my own purposes. But rather, if it's something that interests me to approach, you know, friends I have in that community or I don't have friends in that community to make friends in that community and reach out to people and really have that sense of opening the lines of communication to learn rather than to co-opt. And I think that's really important, an important strategy to have just because it expands your networks in ways um, that is, I think, really uh, productive and culturally dynamic and really allows for forms of, you know, uh, either collaboration or, you know, some people have called it fusions. And another strategy I do like to uh, employ as well you know, question myself of why am I doing something like this? When I'm taking something from another culture and using it, am I doing it for, you know, my own financial gain? Am I doing it for my own social cultural capital gain? Um, and, you know, how does it affect the people who I could be potentially marginalizing? And a lot of times we forget that the object does have meaning to other folks, especially if it's a sacred object. My general advice for that is stay away from sacred objects because they hold so much more meaning for folks than, you know, anything that could be, you know, a, a vase or, or something that could be just like a, a print or a pattern somewhere. You know, just going on the internet, Google is everyone's friend at this point or a search engine of some sort and Googling, you know, just how you can educate yourself. And so really just trying to make that effort to find out, am I potentially a cultural appropriator or am I going to be, you know, participating respectfully in this practice or respectfully in this, um, in using this object? I totally agree. And you've touched on some themes that we've actually brought up several times on this podcast before. Um, the first of which is considering your motivations. This is something we talked about when we interviewed No White Saviors about um, white saviorism and travel in, in Africa. And I think this is something that a lot of travelers are now realizing applies to almost every aspect of travel, like taking a moment to consider why you're traveling the way you are or to the place that you are traveling, why you're treating the people you encounter a certain way. All of this has to do with motivation. It's interesting that you bring that up as a, a strategy for avoiding cultural appropriation. I wanted to dive into some of our listener questions. They had some really good ones. One of them was about yoga, so we already touched on that. So this is a more generalized one. So the question is, is it possible to have a respectful cultural exchange between a marginalized culture and a Western one? I would say, of course, cultural exchange between any cultures exists. But I think a lot of times is we have to realize that even though that respectful cultural exchange might be occurring between, you know, a marginalized culture versus a Westernized culture, um, we need to recognize that those power dynamics still exist. The key thing about having respectful cultural exchange isn't really necessarily about 50-50 kind of cultural exchange where, you know, a culture gives 50% and another culture gives 50% and then you suddenly come up with this like equal fusion. But rather, it's really about having those from the Western or dominant culture make space for those within the marginalized cultures to speak and, you know, make sure that they're not erasing their voices at the same time. You know, a lot of times the respectful cultural exchange that can occur is not necessarily one where we're just, you know, having a conversation, but one where the dominant culture, um, and, you know, sometimes it's not even a Western culture, needs to consciously make space and make the voices of those in the margins to, to speak and really making the effort not to belittle or erase the, the experiences that they're sharing. Yeah, a lot of these questions are touching on similar themes, but I want to ask them just so that everyone gets the answers they're looking for. 
and I think this is one that a lot of travelers actively think about, is wearing a region's cultural clothing within that region. I know when I traveled in India, I was there for almost two and a half months. And initially, I wore my regular clothes. And as time passed, I realized that wearing these sort of like long tunic shirts was much more comfortable. And they're sold all over tourist markets. And so eventually, I just switched to like I bought one or two of these tunics and ended up wearing them paired with leggings. And I wore it because it was more comfortable. And a lot of the time, locals would compliment me on what I was wearing. And it seemed like they really liked that I was wearing something like more culturally embedded to the region. And here's the thing, when I came home, I put them away and I've never worn them once here because for some reason in my mind, it was like, okay, that was okay there, but here I don't really have a reason to be walking around in this. And so I'm going to put this away and I'll wear it next time I go to India. So what would you say about this? Like, how, how do we work with this? Like, is that approach a good, good one to take or is there more nuance to this? Yeah, that's a really excellent question as well. And, you know, I think even myself as like a non-white person, when I go to, you know, different countries, I sometimes wear, you know, whatever they have available at the local markets and things like that. And so, you know, it's a really delicate line to balance, I think. But one of the the things I do consider when, you know, especially thinking about clothing, because it's how we, in a way, you know, at first glance, express ourselves, ensuring that we're not wearing the clothing of that culture or that region as a form of costume. And I think that is the main kind of differentiator there, because I 100% agree when you're in that uh, space, especially that region, and you're trying to interact with the culture fully, and folks might give you presents as that there are clothing, and you want to wear them as well. And in a way, it's about the experience, right? So I don't think it's cultural appropriation to wear that region's cultural clothing in that space, um, especially if they're extremely welcoming of it. But I think also we have to realize that their welcoming of it um, might also have those power dynamics. One of the things I like to think about is, you know, why are they so um, awe or in awe about somebody else wearing their cultural clothing? Do they see that as a form of respect? I think it really depends on the the space that you're in and the culture that you're interacting with. Because for some cultures, it might be seen as completely acceptable and very lauded. But in some other cultures, especially if it's not for the right occasion or anything like that, um, it could be seen as um, somewhat offensive. You know, it really depends on the context that you're in and, you know, making sure that it's appropriate for the occasion and for the region and for the culture itself. You know, when you're returning back to your home homeland or, um, you know, the space outside of that region, if you're wearing those garments um, outside of it, it's important to, you know, it's the person's prerogative where to wear those clothes, that clothing. But I think, you know, the safest practice would probably, like you said, to save it and wear it for that uh, different occasion um, or a specific occasion. For folks who want to wear these types of regional clothings or regional cultural clothings, it's really important to keep in mind and question yourself of, am I wearing this as a form of costume um, and using that to my advantage? So I think that is the main kind of differentiator there is that, you know, wearing cultural clothing, I think is perfectly acceptable. And I think the additional layer onto that then is being respectful of the artisans who create that clothing and, you know, purchasing that clothing from a local artisan or a local craftsman is really important as well. And so, you know, especially when you're contributing financially to that local community. And and just like to assess myself looking back, it wasn't until later that I actually did some research and, and wondered, okay, like, what is this that I'm wearing? And what role does it play like within this culture? And I'll share that it is called an Indian Curtis, and it is a casual outfit that women wear. So it's more day to day wear. But 
really discovered this later when I'd come home and it, it crossed my mind. Oh, I wonder like what this is worn for. So looking back, I feel like it would have been a better call for me to research that before putting it on and walking around in it. I think that's really good advice for, for people like as a starting point, just like look into the cultural meaning of a piece of clothing before you adopt it. So this next one, I think is going to be a more complicated question. And I think that because it relates to something spiritual. So this person is wondering if it is cultural appropriation to take ayahuasca. It is a um, Peruvian traditional spiritual medicine. And I think that a lot, I myself have not traveled there, but I think that a lot of tourists go to have this experience while they are in Peru. Yeah, that's a that's a hard question for me to answer just because I'm not uh I'm not very familiar with that tradition. From my sense, especially since it's a spiritual practice um, and it's a traditional spiritual practice, I think we have to be extra cautious. And you know, I know that um, from just the brief research I did on it, Peru has seen you know an uptick in the number of folks going to to experience this because of the, the publicity that's been around it. And so I think we have to be aware of the the economic impacts that you know our our uh, tourism and travel might take especially in terms of adopting particular spiritual practices, similar to, to yoga and similar to any sort of you know, potential cultural appropriation practices. Taking ayahuasca, I, it could be potentially one of those borderline situations where because it's a spiritual practice, I think we have to take extra care and practice extra caution, making sure that the, the places that you're going to and the, the ways in which you're participating are not purely um, just about you know exoticizing or essentializing a culture and really taking into account that you know this is this has roots in a different culture than yours and so i think you know in terms of you know is it a cultural appropriation to take ayahuasca in general um i would say it really is dependent on the way that the person approaches it um are they approaches are they approaching it as a you know a one off kind of practice where they're just using it as a way to you know say like hey on social media hey i've done this it's crazy it's wild that I feel like is, is much more on the appropriation side. Whereas if somebody is going to take uh, ayahuasca as that kind of spiritual journey of closer, much closer to its origins, go to a uh, spiritual practitioner who has been you know, practicing it for years and has that really in-depth knowledge and takes the time to learn about that. I think that then is much more on the appreciation side and much more kind of closer to the, perhaps its roots. But what happens like, because I've wondered about this with other cultural practices, especially spiritual ones, what happens when these practices become in a sense commercialized? Because then it seems like an economy is developed around something that was once a very intimate and spiritual practice. And then suddenly it's being commercialized because obviously there's an opportunity here to capitalize off tourism. Like to me, there's something feels not right about that, but I'm not sure I can like articulate what it is exactly that makes me so uncomfortable about that idea. Maybe one of the discomforts, at least what I feel when I'm reading about these types of topics is that especially with spiritual practices in place, when there's an entire economy that emerges behind it, that economy is one where it's the same types of hierarchies that existed before, especially ones between the West and the non-West or the colonizer and the colonized that are reinforced through these spiritual practices that are, you know, meant to be spiritual and not commercial. Um, you know, if we're participating in these spiritual practices or any sort of cultural practice, you know, they continue to reinforce hierarchies that um, are, are age old and have very, very deep roots in any sort of cultural interaction. And, 
And so I think a lot of times that heads into the the space of, you know, our cultural dynamics and socioeconomic and all that kind of other other aspects that we have to consider. I think that's where a lot of that discomfort comes from, because, you know, while it can be as very, very strong spiritual practice for those who are local or even folks who go in and are trying to experience that, you're 100 percent correct in, in pointing out that the economies that emerge because of it further reinforce the boundaries that exist between cultures and further reinforce the social economic hierarchies that are at play in these spaces as well. Because those who are offering these to tourists or offering these uh, spiritual experiences to tourists are also just trying to make ends meet a lot of times. And they're trying to um, survive in this globalized tourist culture. You know, in a way, we can say that, you know, it's a it's a culturally appropriate practice taking ayahuasca and therefore we should not practice it. It is, you know, 100 percent wrong. But at the same time, when you say things like that, you know, those economies that are, are that are local and that exist and have been families that have been benefiting um, in this kind of structure are at a disadvantage as well. So I think, you know, a lot of times the roots of this issue can be traced back to of the connection between cultural appropriation and the, not only colonialism, but of capitalism as well. A lot of times the conclusion is that it will continue to put pressure on these societies to continue to participate in these, you know, exploitative practices. Sometimes tourists can go and exploit that culture that can be extremely, extremely detrimental. And so, you know, my general kind of sense is that it's always better to try to stay away from, from things like that, just as a general rule of thumb. And it's really just about bringing that awareness and really recognizing that all these power hierarchies are not just, we think of one culture as higher than the other, but they are backed by uh, capitalist dynamics that exist. And I think you've pointed to something that we've we've also discussed previously on this podcast, which is that the travel industry is very consumer driven. So as soon as tourists are catching on to a trend like ayahuasca has become, it becomes up to those consumers to reposition it because as long as there's demand, people will fill that demand. What would you say is the best way to address an individual's act of cultural appropriation? So if you witness someone and you think that they are um, participating in cultural appropriation, what would be the best way to go about addressing it? And should we address it if we see it? 100%. We definitely should address it when we see it. Um, and it can be difficult, especially if you're not in our coronavirus situation, but if you're walking around on the street and you see somebody that you don't know and you don't recognize doing something that they shouldn't be doing or appropriating somebody else's culture, it's a lot harder to bring up. But if it's somebody, especially who you know personally, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to call them out on you know what they are doing. Really having that sense of, you know, hey, this might be an act of a cultural appropriation is really the starting point for somebody to maybe self-reflect and think about like, should I look this up or should I, you know, educate myself further? Or if they've already educated themselves to really express that, hey, this is what I've learned and share that information with others as well. And I think the really important thing about what is the best way is for me, approaching it with general kind of um, kindness rather than the kind of severe call-out culture some folks ascribe to is probably the best way to to address that. If we're approaching somebody and we're trying to get to change, if we tell them, hey, this is um, wearing cornrows when you're not a person of color or when you're not black, it's very much um, it can be charged and can be seen as an active cultural appropriation. But also maybe providing some resources for them to really dig deep and think about, you know, what are the potential um, way avenues of remediating that? a sense of a solution rather than saying, hey, you're doing things completely wrong. Because I think that that kind of negative affect that it might emerge from that person would maybe promote their their ability or their desire to dig in their, their heels a little bit more. And so for me, it's really about 
opening that line of conversation with ask them why are they um, uh, you know, culturally appropriating or why do they particularly like this object or this particular aesthetic styling and trying to get to the root of that. Um, if I were to structure it a little better, a little bit better here, I would say, you know, the first thing is absolutely to address the, um, the act. And number two is to say, hey, why are you doing this? And the number three would definitely be to be like, hey, these are some resources uh, that you can look up about the overall effect of cultural appropriation in relation to the people that you are, um, you know, potentially appropriating from or that you want to maybe have a, a pro progressive or productive cultural exchange with. And this is how we can maybe remediate the situation. And I think you've touched on a concept we've brought up before of calling people in rather than calling people out, which is basically aiming to get the person to actually truly understand why they've been called in, and then with the goal of having them be able to change that problematic behavior. I love that term calling them in because I think it really refers to this really strong sense of community and having these open lines of communication. And it really is so dependent on each person's you know, own individual reaction, their own individual experience. And so having those open forms of communication or open lines of communication, I think, can really help you know, move the needle forward in terms of understanding cultural appropriation and understanding you know, where the lines and boundaries are. Mm -hmm. So lastly... And on that note, this is very related. Are there any resources that you can suggest for people to share with other people about cultural appropriation to further open up this discussion? In terms of resources, you know, I mentioned one already. Um, Everyday Feminism has been great. It's a online magazine and they have tons of resources for anything kind of cultural appropriation related. Um, at the same time, I believe there was a, uh, a documentary series that was uh, um, filmed by PBS. Um, so they're the public broadcasting station um, here in the U.S. And they have, uh, I think, a whole series, I think it's up on YouTube. And additionally, they have a cultural appropriation viewing guide. And it's a PDF that anyone can download and has really kind of quick takes on, you know, what cultural appropriation is, what potentially like strategic anti-essentialism, is it relation to its relation to music, its relation to video. Um, and so I think that that particular resource um, is really helpful for understanding the topic overall. Of course, there's all, a ton of academic research on uh, cultural appropriation and appreciation and uh, essentialism or anti-essentialism, um, but I won't bore you with the, the hundreds of titles there. <laughs> but I think um, in, you know, having those online resources, especially right now um, in our, our current context, this is particularly helpful. So, Well, thank you so much. We're going to look up all of those resources and we will link them in the show notes for everyone to check out on their own. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. This has been really great. I'm very excited to share this with our listeners. No worries. Thank you for taking the time to, to speak with me. And I, I really enjoyed having this conversation. I hope um, I didn't ramble on too much. I have that uh, strong tendency. <laughs> that was a lot to digest, but I feel like I have a better grasp now on how to think about cultural appropriation, how to avoid it, and how to just in general be respectful to cultures at home, but also while traveling. What about you, Katie? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I'm just thankful that all of our guests even decided to talk to us about all of this stuff. And I think especially now, one thing that keeps ringing true for me is, especially our episode with No White Saviors, is uh, good intentions aren't good enough. And that's sort of what's been getting me through the last month or so. And just rethinking about how I approach things and what my role is in fighting against racism. So... I've been thinking about actual action that I can take, and it's been a lot, but it's definitely been worth it. So hopefully that's something I can bring to this conversation as well. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that, well, I've definitely seen discussions about intent versus impact coming up um, really frequently in conversations about doing anti-racist work. And I agree with you. I think it's really crucial that white people specifically think about the impact of our actions. Of course, intent is important to a degree, but it has more to do with ourselves than with considering other people. Like intent is really about just making yourself feel good about something you've said or something you've done. Mm -hmm. I think by thinking about the impact of our actions, we're centering the experience of other people instead of centering ourselves. So yeah, and I think that Melissa really framed that point well by emphasizing how important it is to listen to others about the impact that our actions have on them. And of course, like, this is lifelong work. I think it's important to remember, like, as white people, especially, we are going to be called out or called in at times. And that is okay. And we need to take those moments and try to grow and learn from them. So before we wrap up, I want to shout out my dear friends, Rashid Mohidin and Senayi. They have both been on this podcast before. If you want to go back to season one, which feels like literal decades ago that we so recorded. long ago. <laughs> they are both in episodes from that season. So go listen. Along with Melissa, they helped to guide me in thinking about and writing this episode. So I just wanted to shout them out. And finally, I want to wrap up by recapping the questions that Melissa suggests we ask ourselves when we're trying to determine if we're participating in cultural appropriation. Okay, so question one, have you been invited to take part in a tradition or invited to wear cultural clothing by the people who are part of that culture? Being explicitly invited is key. Second, have you asked a friend or a local person before wearing or doing something that is part of their culture? And then lastly, did you familiarize yourself with local customs? So for example, before wearing a traditional outfit, have you Googled what the meaning of that outfit is to that culture? And yeah, I think the, just to rehash it again, I think these questions really emphasize how important when talking about cultural appropriation, it is to center other people's experiences rather than our own. Oof. Okay. This episode is getting really, really long, but yes, I have more to say alpaca pals. Before I let you go, I have to share some quick news and that's that we have almost wrapped up this season of Alpaca My Bags. We've got just two more episodes for you until Katie and I take a break to enjoy the summer. While we're on break, we're going to start planning new episodes. So that means if there is a topic that you'd like us to tackle in season three, now is the time to let us know. You can send us a DM on Instagram or you can email us. Our email is hello at alpacamybags.ca. If you've enjoyed Alpaca My Bags, please take two minutes to leave us a quick review. You can review us in the Apple Podcasts app. Your review makes it easier for other listeners to find us, and we love to hear your feedback. All right, Alpaca Pals, we hope all of you are keeping safe and well, and when we get back to travel in the future, remember, take that train instead of the plane. Thank you.